Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be uh, looking a little bit deeper into Following the Equator by uh, Mark Twain, um, finishing up our look at his travel literature uh, over the next few episodes. Thankfully, perhaps, I don't know. Um, for, certainly, we're ending on a good one. We're ending on one that's just amazing and, and fun to read and insightful and and more so than any of the rest, I think, holds up as a, as a, as a pretty solid anti-colonialist text um, that looks at the totality of the colonial experience. And I, that's why I found the, the chapters, which we're looking at today, which really deal with Australasia, Australia, New Zealand, um, Tasmania, places like that. Uh, he spends a lot of time here. I, I kind of would like him to... I, I, when this when this section ended, he was like on his way to India, and I'm like, finally, let's, let's let's kind of change settings a little bit. But that said, I think there's really wonderful stuff in in this that like appreciates the colonial period as as something that's like damaging across the board. It's it's you know the now of course this might come from Mark Twain's own racial background and and maybe has some some greater sympathy to certain groups and others maybe he comes out a little bit with some kind of wait well, does he not he doesn't come out with like a noble savage idea but like kind of a a fascination in the power and the creativity of indigenous people um and that that comes off a little bit like liberal in his his kind of you know look at at australia but certainly from the perspective of 19th century colonialism he is you know at least seeing these people as humans which uh is something that that's not very common among among americans or british writing at the time about these people um i i've read a lot of accounts of pacific islanders and and i think there's i haven't read much on you know the primary sources on on australian aboriginal people but I'd be surprised if there's much quite as sympathetic as what you get here. But as I mentioned last time a little bit too, he, he's also broadly sympathetic with with the white working class who were just like thrust out of their environments. Maybe they were coming through the criminal justice system of, of Britain. Maybe they were um, poor migrants, indentured servants of some sort, you know, thrust to Australia and forced to work in pretty horrible conditions too, doing the grunt work of empire, right? Uh, and of course, the, that grunt work of empire was was done by people who were themselves victims of of imperialism, right? Like whether you're talking about the white sailors or the multi multiracial members of the sailing of the ships that colonized or that brought the Pacific into you know, into the global economy, or if you're the people building the docks, the hewers of wood and drawers of water. If you know, like, if you read Many Headed Hydra by uh, Leinbaum Redeker, you're aware of just how um, how the proletariat was an interracial thing. And yeah, the hammer held felt hardest maybe on in, on indigenous people and on enslaved men and women. But it's not like the colonizing class themselves were you know, picking up the, the, the hoe, building the docks, building the railroads, you know, extracting stuff from the mines. It's, 
it's falling on that British American working class. Uh, in Australia, of course, it's it's the British working class, but it's 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 a broad tragedy that 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 Twain is is describing here. Um, now he, as as is common in his travel logs, Mark Twain certainly inter like spreads out his his analysis with, or he he sprinkles his analysis with anecdotes and stories and personal experiences and diary entries and and that's that's we've seen before in his travel logs but when he's on point it's really some of his best uh non-fiction writing i think um and and he's like forced to get to the point he like that was my kind of my complaint with a tramp abroad is is he's he's so impressionistic about what he's experiencing he doesn't ultimately seem to have much of a point. It really took a lot of labor to kind of try to extract out what his point is, um, you know. And that's that's better than just being making bold statements that are just wrong and dumb, right? It's better to be impressionistic, and that's the case. But here, of course, he's he's clear and direct and right and 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 correct in his analysis. So that's what I I really liked about it. Now. Obviously, these, these 100 pages, and it's a little more than 100 pages, actually, this time, but it, it covers Australia for the most part. Um, um, and, so, and so let's let's try to deal with this account of Aboriginal people, which, which is quite complex and, and carries on over several chapters. Um, he, he tries to put himself in the mind of the early uh, British settlers um, of, of Australia encountering the Aboriginal people, writing... There must have been a large distribution of acuteness among those naked, skinny aboriginals, or they couldn't have been such an unapproachable trackers and boomerangers and wet wetters. It must have been race aversion that put upon them a great deal of the low-rate intellectual reputation which they bear, and they have borne this long time in the world's estimate of them. So, so, so this part, he's, being, he's saying these people are actually kind of interesting, and, and it must have just been racism that... that led to people not like taking them seriously um but then he 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 goes on he says they were lazy always lazy perhaps that was their trouble it is a killing defect surely they could have invented and built a competent house but they did and they couldn't have invented and developed the agricultural arts they could have invented and developed agricultural arts but they didn't they went naked and houseless and lived on fish and grubs and worms and wild fruits and were just plain savages for all their smartness Quote. So that this is like the noble savage idea, which he he kind of falls back to, saying like, uh, you know, they obviously their homes, their way of life suits their environment and 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 suited their survival for for many centuries. And obviously they were one of the last places settled, the last populations to move in um, and settle. So it's, I guess they're the newest indigenous people. In this part of the world but nevertheless they are the indigenous people and, and had lived there for many centuries and whatever they had works for them and of course you you do have this kind of civilizing mission culture which twain can't escape um but partially he's trying to put himself in the minds of of the early settlers and how they observed that um quote with a country as big as the united states to live and multiply in with no epidemic diseases among them till the white man came with those and his other appliances of civilization it's quite probable that there was never a day in his history when he could muster 100,000 of his race in all of Australia. He diligently and deliberately kept population down by infanticide, largely, but mainly by certain other methods. He did not need to practice these artificialities anymore after the white man came. Quote. Now, now here is falling into a trap 
Um, which he doesn't fall into with the uh, Pacific Islanders, where he just actually traces their population decline. And that is to kind of assume, like, once it is colonized, once the settlers arrive and and settle there and, and, and become a permanent population, and then you kind of look around and say, where are the indigenous people? They aren't here. So there must never have been here, right? Or there must never have been many, right? This was the, the classical argument justifying American imperialism. The, the imperialism of the Americas, I mean, is to say, oh, there's really, there's some native people here, but they're just like some scattered tribes. When in fact, they were devastated by diseases. Now, I don't know the history of that in the case of the of the Australian aboriginals, but obviously being, you know, part of the ongoing Colombian exchange, they would have been exposed to those European diseases as well. Um, so he's... There are, I mean, as right as he is on most of his analysis, he's still coming to terms with the horrors that he sees around him in in these in the language of 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 European Empire to a certain degree. But I mean, I guess we can sort of forgive that because he he does kind of get on tries to get at the population issue a little bit here, um, and then he kind of looks at this from the perspective of of a kind of a befuddlement um, quote. The early whites were not used to savages. They could not understand the primary law of savage life. And if a man do you wrong, his whole tribe is responsible, each individual of it. And you may take your change out of any individual in it without bothering to seek out the guilty one. When a white man killed an aboriginal, the tribe applied the ancient law and killed the first white they came across. To the whites, this was a monstrous thing. Extermination seemed to be the proper medicine for such creatures as this. They did not kill all the blacks, but they promptly killed enough of them to make their own person safe. From the dawn of civilization down to this day, the white men had always used this very precaution, end quote. Now, what's great about this passage, and, and I am kind of dissecting one section like kind of line for line because it's so good, but what he's getting at here is the hypocrisy of the, of the argument, right? Like the argument being like, we are, we have justice, we have the enlightenment, we, we whites understand that you kill someone because they're actually guilty um, personally for it. They have this kind of tribal mentality of, 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 of blood revenge or whatever. That's backwards. And then they, of course, turn around and do the very thing, right? They turn around and make the arbitrary murder of the entire Aboriginal pop population, or at least a big part of it, like in a preemptive kind of defense, which is not going to target the people that were actually the murderers of these whites before mentioned. Um, so the encounter between Europeans and Aboriginals is described here as based on kind of misunderstanding, a cultural gap between them, and and ultimately violence. It ultimately comes down to to the to the gun. I mean, he, his, he's fascinated with the boomerang, which of course is an offensive weapon as well. I think it was mostly used for hunting, but but certainly, a, you know, Twain points out here it could kill people and did. Um, and he kind of concludes on this thinking like kind of in terms of the civilizing mission but he he guts it he guts the civilizing mission at the end here saying the white man's spirit was high but his method was wrong his spirit was the spirit of the civilized white had always exhibited toward the savage but to use the poison was a departure from custom true it was merely a technical departure not a real one still it was a departure and therefore a mistake in my opinion it was better kinder swifter and much more humane than a number of other methods which have been sanctioned by customs but it does not justify its employment. 
That is, it does not wholly justify it. Its unusual nature makes it stand out and attract an amount of attention which it's not entitled to. It takes hold upon morbid imaginations, and they work it up into some sort of exhibition of cruelty, and this smirches the good name of our civilization, whereas one of the older, harsher methods would have had no such effect because Eutychus had, had made those methods familiar to us and innocent. Now, the story he's talking about is where uh, these whites... Uh, you know, poisoned a, a village of, of aboriginals, giving them some, like, poison pudding. And, uh, you know, he's he's going to the heart of, 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 of the Imperialist project, which is just ultimately about murder and subjugation. Um, just the language of the civilization just becomes, like, a justification for it, right? And he's a little satirical here, obviously, kind of trying to expose this conceit of, of the civilizing mission. So this, this is all in chapter 31. It's a really good chapter that I think um, sums up his, his ideas of them. And then the next chapter, he, he starts it out. I love his actual use of the Puddenham Wilson axioms at the start of every chapter because they do um, really get to the heart of the theme of the chapter. Um, he starts out this one saying, nothing is so ignorant as a man's left hand except the lady's watch, end quote. And then he has a chapter about praising the aboriginals' skills and talents and creativity. Um, you know, and of course, the, the axiom here is about ignorance, about not knowing the other, right? And, and that's what he accuses the Australians of not really grasping is the, the strength in, in creativity um, of these people, and then of course that puts the tragedy at, at a whole, at, a, at even a higher level. And he actually says, even though he didn't like Femin James Feminor Cooper's writings, obviously there's a famous essay about that. He he actually thinks, you know, Feminor Cooper could have run with this because he's very famous for that kind of noble savage idea. That you know, and for all his faults as a writer, I did a whole series on him before. One thing he's not is is condescending towards indigenous people. He certainly uh, gives them a lot of agency in their. Um, now his hero has to be a white person; couldn't be otherwise. But it's a white person who, you know, understood, lived with, you know, engaged with at, at a personal level, the the culture of indigenous people. It says, uh, Feminor Cooper lost his chance. He would have known how to value these people. He wouldn't have traded the dullest of them for the brightest mohawk he ever invented. But then he gets to kind of the final stage of colonization, which is uh, kind of the taming of the, of the aboriginals. And just like Australia at some point wanted to say, I mean, I guess Australians couldn't. They have to continue dealing with this this relationship and and what they put them in but from mark twain's point of view you can say he can say so much for the aboriginals it is difficult for me to let them alone they are marvelously interesting creatures for a quarter of a century now the several colonial governments have housed their remnants in comfortable stations and fed them well and taken good care of them in every way if i had found this out while i was in australia i could have seen some of these people but i didn't i would walk 30 miles to see a stuffed one unquote then he he admits here he doesn't see them because they are already they're already in the, like, they're already wards of the state, essentially. Of course, we know about the, the, the boarding house system and how that was part of the colonization and genocide of, of, of the indigenous people of Australia. Um, now, he kind of admits here he's getting all his, all his 
everything about Aboriginals from other sources. But he's still attuned enough to read through that, the, the true nature of, of the encounter. So I think these are really, really good chapters on, on that side of, of the colonizing project. Now, when he goes down to, to Tasmania, he's able to, to kind of revisit the story um, in kind of a new location because this would become another kind of case study of, of, of essentially extermination. He uses the word, actually. And one that's much more complete in his view, um, a more complete extermination, uh, really, maybe. I, I, I don't know the history of this, but um, in his account, he's, he's saying, like, yeah, here, this was a total eradication of a population. Um, he writes, uh, passing between Tasmania and neighboring islands, islands once the poor exiled Tasmanian savage used to gaze upon their lost homeland and cry and die of broken hearts. How glad I am that all these ancient native races are dead and gone or nearly so the work was mercifully swift and horrible in some portions of australia as far as tasmania is concerned the extermination was complete not a native is left it was a strife of years and decades of others uh, or in decades of years it was a strife of years and decades of years the whites and blacks hunted each other and ambushed each other and butchered each other the blacks were not numerous they were wary, alert, cunning, and they knew their country well. They lasted for a long time, few as they were, and inflicted much slaughter upon the whites. The government wanted to save the blacks from ultimate extermination if possible. One of its schemes was to capture them and coop them up in a neighboring island under guard. Bodies of whites volunteered for the hunt, and the pay was good, five pounds for each black captured and delivered, but the success achieved was not very satisfactory. The black was naked and his body was greased. He was hard to get a grip on that would hold him. The whites moved around in armed bodies and surprised little families of natives and did make captures, but it was suspected that in those surprises, half a dozen natives were killed in, uh, were killed to one caught, and that was not what the government desired, end quote. So this is, he, there is a little bit of, uh, of sarcasm in this account, obviously, but he's describing actually a really brutal reality where basically there's a price put on the heads of indigenous people and there was kind of a state of government policy of basically putting them in a concentration camp on another island. And the process of collecting these people, like most were murdered by, by these thugs, essentially, who were working paid agents of the government. And then he talks about like a government proclamation, essentially, that was trying to make peace between the groups. Uh, the governor's proclamation, which was pictorial because of the you know the assumption that the indigenous people couldn't read and he wants both audience to see it and so it 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 basically the top line of this you can see it it's on page 581 of the library of america version if you have your own copy of this you can see it it was produced in 1819 apparently the first line basically says the governor wishes the whites and blacks to love each other the second one is he loves his black subjects and then if a black kills a white he'll be hung and if a white kills a black the white will be hung right and this is the policy and uh, this didn't work. Uh, uh, the, the murders continued. So this kind of, we call it, he blames it of being kind of a moral suasion project that uh, was doomed to failure. And the end result was being the, the gradual eradication of, of black people because ultimately the policy was one of, of a genocide. It was one of removing them uh, from, from this island. But, you know, try to do that peacefully. You can. And th this is the truth of genocide, right? You cannot remove a population from a region without, without genocidal results, 
right? That's why the UN does talk about mass deportations as, you know, as ethnic cleansing and genocide. It fits under the international law in respect to that for reasons like this. So anyways, this stuff on t t uh, Tasmania is pretty good. Um, just again on the on the on the violence of empire. Now another issue he takes up here that I think is, is relevant to a discussion of colonization is ecological change, because as you have indigenous people being thrust off the land in various ways, um, you also have new species being introduced. I know there's a you know a lot of history here to of invasive species in Australia. I think no indigenous Australian animals have hooves, for instance, right? And, and here he talks about rabbits um, in New Zealand uh, and, and the lacking of, of natural enemies. He actually goes through this. He says, the natural enemies of the rabbit in England are the poacher, uh, the stoat, the weasel, the ferret, the cat, and the mongoose. Um, and, and they're not there. Well, no, I think actually he's saying he's saying about the cats at least that that there's a different like I'll just read it because he's 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 making a bit of a joke here about uh, about the ease of life of cats in New Zealand because I guess they were introduced but uh, along with these other invasive species but um but the fact that there's not other natural predators of of rabbits means they're going to spread and makes it kind of easy life for the cat which is, is kind of, he jokes around with it being sort of, uh, you know, it exposes the cat as a bit lazy. Here, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, the man who introduced the rabbit here was banqueted and lauded, but they would hang him now if they could get him. In England, the natural enemy of the rabbit is detested and persecuted. In the bluff region, the natural enemy of the rabbit is honored and the person is sacred, and his person is sacred. Um, the bluff being... New Zealand. The rabbit's natural enemy in England is the poacher. In the bluff, its natural enemy is blah, 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 the cat. Uh, in England, any person below an heir who is caught with a rabbit in his possession must satisfactorily explain how it got there, or he will suffer a fine imprisonment together with extinction and his peerage. In bluff, the cat found with a rabbit in his possession does not have to explain. Everybody looks the other way. The person caught noticing would suffer a fine and imprisonment with extinction of peerage. This is a sure way to undermine the moral fabric of the cat. I go, now that's the joke, is that the cat doesn't have to like um, hide his shame because the desire is to kill the rabbits, right? The rabbits have spread without too many natural predators. So killing a rabbit is, is not a crime as it would be in England. So being a poacher or being like a, a bit of a, a heroic figure and then he goes on to say that actually you'll be punished or fined for actually killing any of these natural predators of, of the rabbits. Now, the point of all this is just to say that it's just to kind of hint at invasive species and the ecological change that comes to, you know, comes to places that are encountering Europe in this era where the world economy is being more integrated and you have the continuing of the Columbian Exchange just at an accelerated rate, right? And we're still undergoing this. This is still going on. So there's so there's that. Um, now I sort of repeat. It's a kind of a rinse and repeat with 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 uh, the New Zealand materials here, where he talks about the same kind of fate that happened to the indigenous people, and a little bit on ecological change there too. Um, uh, but 
but this kind this kind of wraps up what uh, happens, what's discussed here about uh, Australasia, Australasia, Australia. What is it? it Australasia is different. Australasia. Um, and then we get uh, the continuation of the story um, in India. So that's where we're going to pick up next time. We'll uh, look at the chapters that take us from, I think, India. I think all of it's in India. Yeah, I think all, everything left here and even into the final episode on this series uh, on the travel literature will also be set most of these partially in India. So um, we're kind of going to move from one phase of the emperor, one place of the empire to another. Very different context. Very different uh, experience of encounter. Um, dealing with a very different type of civilization the British were. Um, but the terrors of empire are no less acute. Um, and so that's what we'll do next time. So anyways, uh, there's a lot. There's As with all these travel logs, there's a lot of, of details and side descriptions and and jokes and and commentary throughout but i think the heart of this whole the first two sections at least is just how the pacific was radically transformed by european colonialism in in basically devastating ways and when he gets to australia he's able to reflect a little bit more on um although i know i talked mostly about the indigenous people's experiences but but Mark Twain is also kind of horrified at what he sees among the whites, the, the low level of their civilization, the rampant alcoholism, the violence they endure, and the violence they're forced to engage in to, you know, to, to be the foot soldiers of this conquest. Um, so it, it, is, it is an argument against imperialism that, that is supposed to, like, get you to have sympathy for the indigenous but I, I but i think there's space that mark twain's saying like this is bad for everyone this is bad for us too and it's not really worth it um but um i mean that might all come from 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 his growing cynicism but but i i think it's it's earnest i think there's no reason to doubt that he's clearly um in the anti-imperialist uh, camp at this point so uh, anyways, I guess that's going to be it for now. Um, thanks for listening. See you next time where we'll explore what Mark Twain has to say about India. <laughs>